Welcome to COVID-19, The Path Forward, a new podcast series that explores the challenges leaders face as the world undertakes a massively complex vaccination effort. I'm your host, Jack Leslie, Chairman of Weber Shannon. At the end of the day, our ability to curtail the pandemic lies in people's willingness to wear masks, socially distance, wash their hands, and get vaccinated. But the responsibility to build trust and motivate action is shared by both government leaders and private sector leaders who can be partners in accelerating vaccination efforts and be trusted voices, keeping employees and customers informed. The long-term implications of COVID-19 will extend well beyond this year and even next, and they'll play a role in shaping the future of our health systems and economies and how we cooperate on the global level. Over the next few weeks, I'll talk with experts from the private sector, government, and global institutions who are leading the global response and vaccination efforts. In each episode, we'll focus on key challenges that need to be overcome and the solutions that can put us one step further on the road to build back better. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Peter Sands, the executive director of the Global Fund. As many of you listening probably know, the Global Fund is a partnership designed to accelerate the end of AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria as epidemics. And as an international organization, the Global Fund mobilizes and invests more than $4 billion a year to support programs run by local experts in more than 100 countries. In the spirit of full disclosure, Weber Shanwick was retained to work with the Global Fund last year on its replenishment campaign that raised $14 billion for funding through 2022. Peter, just by way of background, became executive director in March of 2018. He's the former CEO of Standard Chartered and has been a research fellow at Harvard since 2015, working on research projects in financial markets and regulations, fintech, and global health. So welcome, Peter. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It's great to join you, Jack. You know, before we get into, we got a lot of issues to cover in just a half hour or so, but just a little bit on your background. You, you, you spent most of your childhood, I understand, outside of Britain, mostly in Malaysia and Singapore? That's right. Yeah. My father was a naval officer, but actually my grandfather was a rubber planter in Malaysia. So yeah, um, that's where I grew up. Well, and then and then went to Oxford and Harvard. So clearly, you're an under underachiever. And then on to McKinsey before coming becoming a banker. So why in the world did you switch from banking to global health? I was the chief executive of Standard Chartered, which, for those of you who don't know, is sort of one of the most international banks in the world, all over Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Um, I was chief executive for nine years took the bank through the global financial crisis. And when I decided to step down from there, I didn't really want to do another corporate job. I sort of felt like I'd been there, done that. And Standard Chartered had been extraordinarily interesting. And, you know, I got through the crisis and so on. And the first thing that happened is that Larry Summers, who was a friend, invited me to come and park myself at Harvard for a bit without much plan as to what I would actually do. And so when I got there, I sort of said to myself, well, I'll do some stuff that I know I know around financial markets and all that kind of stuff. But also, I had always been interested in health. And I was interested by the fact that between the worlds of health and finance and economics, there's a bit of a chasm of 
understanding. So I started doing some work there and I ended up doing work for the US National Academies of Medicine and with the World Bank and publishing some papers. My daughters who are medical students thought I was a real charlatan because I got papers published in the Lancet and the New England Journal without ever being a doctor or anything. Anyway, uh, but then while I was doing this, I got approached to put my name forward for the Global Fund job. And I hadn't really thought about it, but it's the biggest financing vehicle in global health. It brought together these two interests. Uh, it's focused on the parts of the world that I've both grown up in and also my professional career as a banker had been involved with. Uh, and so I thought, well, well, why not? There aren't, there aren't many jobs in the world where the difference between doing them well and badly is literally measured in hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah, no, and so true with the Global Fund. Well, you obviously knew what you were getting into. And I guess at Harvard, you also did a master's in public administration. So you had a little bit of a sense of what it was to govern a, an organization like the Global Fund. It is a little different. Um, I remember when I was in the interview process, I had an interview with the board and I walked into the room and there were about 180 people there. And I thought, ooh. that's a big board well that's what was my first question because i'm now going to start to drill down a little bit into the global fund because i don't i I think most of our listeners are certainly well aware broadly of your work i don't think most folks really understand how it's governed or necessarily how it came about you want to just take a minute to cover that yeah um it's a pretty extraordinary story actually back in the early part of sort of 2000 2001 or so HIV was beginning to be brought under control in the richer countries in the world, but was exploding in Africa and parts of Asia. So there was a movement, and it was both the HIV activists saying, it's not just enough to protect ourselves sitting in San Francisco or New York or London or Paris. We need to protect other people. And it was also a combination of leaders, people like George W. Bush, Bill Gates, others came together, Kofi Annan played a critical role and said, we we need some sort of global solution to this thing. And it's interesting thinking about it in the COVID-19 context. And they decided also that they couldn't just fight HIV, but they needed to deal with the two other biggest infectious diseases in the world measured by how many people they kill, TB and malaria. And so in 2002, Well, in 2001, they took the decision, so exactly 20 years ago. And in 2002, the Global Fund was created. And it's had an extraordinary impact. I mean, when we have people model the kind of impact of the Global Fund, the number at the moment is some 38 million lives have been uh, saved across the three diseases. And, And crudely speaking, the annual death toll from the three diseases has halved Uh, since the peak. It still means that something like two and a half million people a year die of HIV, TB, and malaria. And that's far, far too many, which is why we we still have a lot of work to do. But it's, it's a really interesting example in this context of the world coming together and saying, we can actually do something big and bold in response to a threat. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think before COVID-19 hit, that was such an amazing story, the progress that's been made really across the board in global health, infant mortality, these diseases, as you say, HIV is no longer a death sentence um, because of the antiretrovirals that you 
and the Global Fund provide. So it, it was it was extraordinary. And then, of course, and this is what I want to get into, we got hit with COVID-19, which the Global Fund has also been quite involved with. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what you've learned at the fund and how it applies to what we're going through now. I was I had a conversation last night with someone you probably know, Chris Elias from the Gates Foundation. And I asked him, what's been your main learning from COVID? And he put it very precisely. He says, he said, well, my main learning is that science overperformed and leadership has underperformed. <laughs> you know, he said, there's, you've had 30 deaths in Singapore and 31,000 deaths in New York City. Leadership is massive. Massive, massive, massive. If you were, yeah, to do, if you were to do a properly calibrated scientific analysis, evidence-based analysis of excess deaths in locations, and then correlated it against various variables, I'm afraid to say the most powerful explanatory variable would be quality of leadership. Yeah, and I want to get later to some issues of how the world is organized, but before we go there. I know this is really important to you, and you've been talking about it a lot, and that is the sort of knock-on effects of COVID um, to your uh, historic mission around HIV, TB, and malaria. Give us a sense of what the kind of what losses we've seen as a result of this pandemic in the areas that you all focus on. The starting point is is that we still don't know quite how big the knock-on impact is because of actually the relative levels of investment are lower across the three diseases than they are with COVID. We don't have anything like the daily data of infections and deaths across the world that we have with COVID. Although the reality is in many of the poorer parts of the world, um, those COVID numbers are massive underestimations. On HIV, um, our initial concern was that people would have the antiretroviral treatment. We have something like 19 million people in the world on antiretroviral treatment would have that interrupted and we would see people dying as a result. Actually, because of really determined efforts by governments, community activists, partners, all sorts of people, there was relatively limited disruption. People found all sorts of ingenious ways of ensuring people had continuity of treatment. However, prevention activities in HIV have been totally disrupted. And, and so we will have seen an increase in infection rates. We just don't really know quite how much. TB, and TB is the biggest killer now after COVID. TB, we've seen dramatic falls in TB diagnosis and then enrollment on treatment in the region of 20 to 40%, depending on which country you're talking about, which means that basically all the hard work we've done over the last three or four years has, has gone out the window, which is a tragedy. And to put this in perspective, COVID-19 killed about 1.8 million people across the world last year, and TB will have killed about 1.6 million people, so about 80% uh, as many. TB probably gets about 1% to 2% the financial resources that have been devoted to COVID. I mean, it's just dramatically smaller. And then on malaria, we did a huge effort last year to ensure that all the campaigns for bed net distribution, for spraying and things to control the mosquitoes were kept on track despite COVID. But, but what I'm really concerned about now is with malaria, and most of the people who die of malaria are children between the ages of zero and five, they develop a fever. And if you treat it within the first sort of 48, 72 hours, they should be okay. If you if it goes beyond 72 hours, there's a high chance they die. Now, 
in many rural parts of, and this is mainly Africa, you're very dependent on community health workers who, you know, get on a motorcycle or a bicycle and cycle out to a village and, 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 and diagnose and treat kids for malaria. There's no backup. If that, if that community health worker gets sick with COVID, that service gets interrupted and case mortality will go up. You'll have more children dying of malaria. And so protecting those community health workers with proper PPE, personal protective equipment, is incredibly important. And if you can vaccinate them, all the better. And this is very much, I mean, last year, what we did is on top of what we were doing anyway, and as you say, we invest about $4 billion a year on HIV, TB, and malaria. We scrambled together another billion dollars and deployed it partly in helping countries respond to COVID itself, tests, PPE, and so on, and partly helping adapt the HIV, TB, and malaria programs to the kind of COVID context. So, for example, with bed net distribution, the classic way you would take malaria bed nets and distribute them is you'd have a truck driving to the middle of a village, and then all the villagers would gather, and they would take for their household the number of bed nets they needed. Now, obviously, that's not great for social distancing. So we switched to another model, which is we had people driving around on motorbikes with a stack of bed nets sort of piled high on the motorbike behind them. And they did door-to-door distribution. But, you know, this meant we had to organize motorbikes. We had to organize masks for the people doing the distribution. And we did that across 38 different countries and delivered over 100 million bed nets in a different way. And that's an example of the kind of thing we were trying to do last year to mitigate the impact on the other three diseases. You talked about how 20 years ago the Global Fund came about, and it came about obviously because there was a recognized need to provide those antiretroviral drugs and TB drugs and bed nets and so forth to low and middle income countries. And because of the same recognition of needing some kind of body to address COVID in low and middle income countries, the world came up with COVAX. Maybe you could take us a little bit through your understanding of how that's working, but mostly I'd love to hear what lessons you think from the global fund experience can be applied to COVAX. As we get into this situation, I mean, it's amazing, you know, Peter, on Saturday, we celebrated having 4 million vaccines administered in the United States, and yet so many countries haven't even given out one shot yet. So the inequities are just enormous. And COVAX and some other initiatives are designed to try to get at that, although in a pretty paltry way. But what, what lessons, I mean, you've been doing this partly from the same understood global need to address these health challenges in low and middle income countries. What advice would you have on COVAX? Well, let me start. I mean, COVAX is basically the vaccines bit of something called the ACT Accelerator. And the ACT Accelerator, which I was once one of a bunch of people who sort of put together last April, was basically some different agencies, Gavi, SAPI, WHO, the Global Fund, and so on, coming together and saying, how do, we, how do we maximize the impact of our various efforts to both accelerate the development of tools and also to provide equitable access to them? And we had a pillar on vaccines, which became COVAX. We had a pillar on diagnostics. We had a pillar on therapeutics. And then we had something called the Health Systems Connector. Each of those pillars have multiple two or three 
agencies attached to them that are collaborating around vaccines, therapeutics, and so forth, right? It, it's broadened to include civil society, the private sector. It's it's quite a broad arena. And it's actually probably been, I would argue, the most effective collaborative mechanism that we've seen in global health. And it's an interesting example because nobody's in charge. It's a kind of collaborative leadership model that we've developed that allowed us all to, in a sense, do our own jobs, but do so in a way that was informed by and coordinated with what the others um, were doing. And the thing that made it work is that the kind of dozen of us who are running the various organizations have been meeting every Thursday evening for a couple of hours since April and sort of sharing what's going on, where we're running into problems, you know, how we can help each other and all that sort of stuff. How long do those meetings go for? It's, it's about a couple of hours. And, you know, there's lots of interactions in between, between on a kind of bilateral basis, but it sort of keeps us all marching with a, with a common vision of what we're trying to do. Now, COVAX is, is the bit that has received most attention because everybody is kind of fixated with um, uh, vaccines. But we've also done a ton of stuff on diagnostics, on PPE, on therapeutics, and all this kind of stuff. And actually, what, what the Global Fund has been focused on is all the other stuff. So um, all the things that aren't vaccines. Now, on the, on the vaccine side, I mean, COVAX has struggled to deliver on the original kind of aspiration of equitable access for vaccines for all, for the simple reason is there aren't enough vaccines being produced and the rich countries are hoarding them all. And even with more money, you can't solve that if, the, if there's a limited supply being manufactured and, and the rich countries are taking it. Now, what I would say is that the very fact that we are arguing about how whether it's a matter of weeks or months after the richest countries in the world getting vaccines to the poorer countries in the world getting them is imperfect, is inequitable, but it's a load better than what we have managed to do before. It took eight years and the death of several million people in places like Africa for antiretrovirals to be deployed at scale in Africa after they had been deployed in the rich countries. We may not have got it perfectly right this time, but the very fact that you know we're offended that it's weeks or months later is is a massive st- step forward, but there are some big lessons. I mean, you know, the, one of the big lessons is that the world was not prepared for this, and it wasn't just about vaccines. It was the same in therapeutics and diagnostics as well. Another big lesson is that the political pressures on governments are such that, in a sense, they will behave badly. Um, so you need to design the system on the assumption that every country is going to be under acute pressure to protect its own. Uh, citizens. Just following up a little bit on that, do you think that we'll, as a result of things like uh, the ACT Accelerator and so forth and the collaboration that's going on, which to your point is speeding things along a lot faster than previous pandemics, but are we going to get left with something that that's institutionalized that is in fact, does in fact put us in a better position next time we have this kind of global health challenge? I think it's really important that we do come up with a better answer uh, than we've had before. I think there's a little bit of a danger that we will rush to have 
an answer that people can say is done as opposed to necessarily thinking through what is the best answer. I also think there's a risk of us assuming that the next pathogen is going to look like COVID. We were actually pretty lucky with COVID. It may not feel like it, but I don't think many scientists would have bet on so many of the vaccines being effective so quickly. And when you think about it, when you rank the four most deadly infectious diseases in the world, with the others being HIV, TB, and malaria, we don't have a vaccine that works for HIV. We don't have the one that works for TB, and we don't have one that works for malaria. And that's not for lack of trying. You can't assume that the next thing that comes along is going to be vaccine ready. There's a general point here, though, that I think we is important to emphasize, which is we do run a bit of a risk at the moment in our global COVID response of being so fixated on vaccines that we actually don't do the right thing from an epidemiological perspective. If you only rely on vaccines and you don't do all the other stuff, you actually maximize the, the chances of the virus having, in a sense, the time and space to uh, mutate in ways that evade the vaccine. What you actually want to be doing is hitting it with everything simultaneously. The rate of viral mutation is fundamentally a function of global prevalence. The more people who have COVID in the world, the faster the rate of mutation. So we need to be crushing global prevalence, infection rates, everywhere in the world as fast as possible, because that will slow the rate of mutation and mean that all our tools, diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, they all work better for longer. And, you know, sort of many of the epidemiologists that I talk to anyway are beginning to come to the realization that this could be like a flu, something that we're going to need regular boosters for. But it means that therapeutics are really critical if we're not going to actually rid ourselves of this virus. And there are, I mean, there is a lot of hope on that front. I was told there are 235 or something different therapeutics that are currently at some stage of development. But you're right, the whole focus right now is on vaccines. But that's understood. That, I mean, it's understandable and that this is a bit of a race to try to get people vaccinated, right? Although what I would say is a strategy that relies solely on vaccines to reduce global infection rates is too slow because we're not going to get a high enough coverage to significantly reduce transmission in, in much of the world, in the lower middle income world, until right near the end of this year or next year. If we want to reduce uh, infection rates fast, we have to be doing that plus supporting lower middle income countries in their test, trace, isolate, their PPE, um, their treatment of severe cases. We need to be doing all that as well. Otherwise, we're going to let this pandemic run rampant effectively in the lower middle income world for the rest of this year, whatever we do on vaccines, because we simply can't get the vaccines out fast enough to make that much difference. And that will threaten all of us because, as I say, the rate of mutation is a function of global prevalence. And my view is we need to be doing the vaccine stuff and we need to be doing all the other stuff and we need to be hitting it as hard as we can. Talk to us. We have a few minutes left. We have so many, so many things to cover. Health systems, which are so important, as you know better than anyone, building up health systems in low and middle income countries, because who knows what the next pandemic will bring. 
And these, each of these, when we're plowing billions of dollars into these programs, give us an opportunity to to leave behind better healthcare systems. Are we doing a good enough job of that? <laughs> well, the evidence would suggest we're not really. But also, I mean, I would argue that COVID has been an interesting test of health systems, both in low middle income countries and in the richest countries in the world. Infectious diseases test aspects of a health system that are different. They test the public health aspects. And not all our rich country health systems have been that good at that. That was my point earlier about Singapore's deaths versus New York City. They were better at at having the initial testing and tracing, you know, the traditional elements of of public health that allow you to crush a, a virus early in its you know in its existence. Yeah, and indeed, some African countries did pretty well because they got a lot of experience from infectious diseases. But you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the much of the COVID-19 response in lower middle income countries was based on the infrastructure and capacities put in place to fight HIV, TB, and malaria, whether it's diagnostics or labs or community health workers or supply chains. You know, you can't build those systems when you get hit by a new pandemic. You've got to rely on the ones you've got. And we have to help these countries continue to invest in these systems. The Global Fund, as I said, last year, we scrambled together about a billion dollars. This year, we are launching a second phase of our COVID response with an initial funding of about $3.6 billion, mainly from the US, also from Germany. And we're looking to expand that further. And that's on top of the $4 billion plus we're spending on HIV, TB, and malaria. And a lot of that is going to be going into the core way the health systems support and respond to the crisis. And it's partly about COVID-19 directly, and it's partly about enabling these systems to continue to support services for HIV, TB, and malaria. Because when it comes down to it, there's not a lot of point in saving somebody from one disease only for them to die of another. You know, The ultimate metric of success here, here has to be both the direct impact of COVID and the minimizing the knock-on impact. Right. A healthy population. Hey, one quick question on uh, leadership. Uh, you know, you probably took note this week, Gail Smith was appointed to lead U.S. diplomacy on COVID. Do you think the U.N. should appoint a senior figure to kind of coordinate international response? There are so many, you know, to the more uninitiated like me, although I, I do have followed global health over the years, but there are many, many organizations and leaders in the space. Would it help to have someone like they're doing with Gail coordinating more at the international level? Or is this more informal, not informal, but the Thursday evening calls and the collaboration that you're talking about sufficient to really get a coordinated international response? What I would say is, I, I, think, I think it's great that Gail's got that role. Um, Grail's a great leader. She's hugely respected, and she she's pretty forceful. Um, uh, she is indeed. Uh, so I, I think it's it's great that she's got that role. But if I look at it at the international space, uh, what I would say is I don't actually think we need some sort of big new leader because what we need is the leaders of the world the leaders of the G20, the G7 countries, 
because they're the ones with the financial resources and the muscle to step up to the plate. That's really what's required at this point. In a sense, we know what we need to do. We're collaborating well enough between the institutions that we can we can make things work and we can we can make things work pretty quickly. But we can't do it if we don't have the money. And we can't do it if the richest countries in the world, who are also the places which are producing all the medical, the vaccines, the diagnostics and therapeutics, hoard them. And ultimately, it's only going to be those government leaders who can deliver, in a sense, can deliver the world for the world. Right, right. No, I, I certainly agree. It's not, it's not as much execution as it is the financial resources. That just begs one more. We'll make it our last question, because a lot of folks who are listening to this are in the private sector. Many of them are clients in various Fortune 100 companies who have themselves been very active in COVID. But do you have any words of wisdom or guidance to the, the role that the private sector should be playing in this? Well, there's lots of things that individual companies can do, and that, that'll vary depending on which sector and everything they're in. But the, the overarching thing, I think, that every private sector CEO should be doing, and I say this as somebody who you know was a CEO of a large international bank, is putting pressure on your governments to do a big global response. Because the, the, the economic cost of doing what we're doing at the moment is horrendous. I mean, the ACT Accelerator is asking for another $20 billion, 22 to be precise, to do its work in, in deploying vaccines and diagnostics and therapeutics and so on. If we brought forward, by spending that $22 billion, we brought forward the resumption of global economic activity by 48 hours, that would be more than paying it for itself. Now, you know, there are limits to corporate philanthropy, but actually I think the voice of corporations to governments saying the thing you need to do is get ahead of this virus, get this thing under control, then we can get back to doing business, you know, making people wealthier, making jobs and all that kind of stuff. That's a really, really powerful argument. And it does require governments to sort of stretch and in an uncomfortable way be spending money they you know, didn't think they had. But the reality is the rich countries can do that. And any economic, you, you, you should look at the, the IMF reckons the difference between a quick response to the crisis and a slow response, and they mean the medical crisis, is $9 trillion. The prize, and you know, the IMF didn't really look at health things before. The IMF is really focused on health stuff now. I would just, for the people listening who are sort of CEOs and leaders of private sector institutions, really think about how much longer you want to be playing the kind of game we're all playing now and how much it's going to cost you and your business. And yeah, share prices and things are high at the moment, but ultimately there has to be some reconciliation between the economic reality of what's going on and what's happening in the stock market. Central banks can only you know, defy gravity for so long. And if we are to get people traveling and trading and going to restaurants and having entertainment and doing all that kind of stuff, and you know, the economy's bustling uh, again, we can only do that if we get rid of COVID. And by far the best way of getting rid of COVID is to do it fast and hard, throwing everything we've got at it now. That's a great way to 
to end our conversation. I did. I do wish we had more time, Peter. It's always great talking to you. And I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. You and the Global Fund have been doing such terrific work. So I, and I hope that those who are listening take heed of those words. So to our listeners, thank you all for joining us. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Take care. Thanks, Zach.